Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I am pleased to introduce today's guest speaker, Bala Subramanian Muthuraman. He is chairman of Tata International Limited and vice chairman of Tata Steel with headquarters in India. He leads operations that have global reach and impact. Tata Steel Minerals Canada Limited has active operations in Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. Tata Steel's $5 billion investment in the region is expected to create thousands of jobs. Mr. Muthuraman began his career as a graduate trainee at Tata Steel in 1966. He went on to, to work in iron making and engineering. He then made the switch to marketing and sales, where he spent 20 years and became vice president of the division. Throughout his career, Mr. Muthuraman has been selected to spearhead major transformative projects. He was the main change agent for the diversification of Tata Steel, a multi-billion dollar company with more than 80,000 employees on five continents. In 2001, he was appointed its managing director and currently serves as the company's vice chairman. In addition to his chairmanship responsibilities, he serves on the boards of Bosch, Tata Industries, and Strategic Energy Technology Systems. He's also president of the Confederation of Indian Industry, chairman of the Board of Governors of the National Institute of Technology in Jamshedpur, a member of the Business Advisory Council of the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, UNESCAP. His management and leadership expertise have been recognized on numerous occasions. In 2007, he was conferred the Honorary Fellowship of All India Management Association. That same year, he was named the Management Man of the Year by the Bombay Management Association. He's also the recipient of a Distinguished Alumnus Award from IIT Madras. He has been named CEO of the Year several times by management and HR associations in India. Mr. Muthuraman, the Canadian Club podium, Canada's podium of record is yours. Thank you for that uh, very generous introduction. I'm sure some of my mother, if she had been here, she would have been extremely proud. <laughs> so first of all, a good afternoon to all of you. And uh, thank you very much for hosting me here. And I'm delighted to be in Canada after many, many years. My last visit to Canada was in 1987, some 20, 25 years ago. And I came on a visit, actually, to look at a new technology in, in Canada, in the area of steel. And uh, we were in, in, in Tata Steel in India, we were about, we were planning a new, uh, what is called a hot strip mill, which sort of makes hot rolled coils from, st from steel ingots or steel slabs. And uh, a company called by the name Stelco here, steel company of Canada, had a technology which they had invented and they had developed and they had sort of implemented very successfully. And we didn't have it in India and we didn't know anything about it. So I was actually sent along with a couple of colleagues of mine. So I came and spent, I think, three or four days or maybe almost a week in Toronto, you know, going every day to the, the, the Stelco company and learning about the art. And finally, we, with the help of the steel company of Canada, we actually implemented it. So that was a visit in 1987. And since I was talking about 
since I was in search for a new technology in Canada and then we found it and then we implemented it, I'm also very happy to see that Canada has kept itself on the forefront and on the cutting edge of technology for several years. You know, whether it's biotechnology or nanotechnology or, you know, alternative power, uh, uh, alternate sources of energy, the, uh, the, the mineral beneficiation of which you have lots of minerals and therefore uh, it is an obvious area where work and research needs to be done in this country. So you have kept yourself, uh, you know, very much ahead and very much on the cutting edge of technology. My other experience with, uh, with Canada was actually with a Canadian company. And I see Mr. Srinivasan from Medcom here. And I'm reminded that way back in 1978, 1980, when I was a young salesman of Tata Steel in a city called Bangalore, uh, there was a big government of India project that was being implemented. It was a pelletizing project using fine iron ores. And um, India did not have the technology uh, to convert that fine iron ore into good pellets. We didn't have the beneficiation technology of the of the material of the raw material that God has given us, and then we, and that so the government of India had appointed Medcom as the as a consultant, and I used to deal with Medcom, you know, quite often and many times. And I had actually taken Medcom engineers to Canada because we wanted to, as a steel company, Tata Steel was wanting to sell some, uh, you know, abrasion resistant plates to this project, and even till today, even till today, it's now what, 30 years or so, even till today, that is the largest single order for that quality of plates that Tata Steel has ever received. So I, I'm grateful to this Canadian med, company, Medcom, so for, for sort of facilitating that process and making it possible for us to, you know, supply those plates to the Kudramukh project in, uh, in India. You know, for a long time, for many years, uh, the relationship between India and Canada has been at a very low key. And I think it's, it's been the case for almost 40, 45, 50 years. And perhaps the reason is, you know, only when you have a good reason to be economically cooperative, economic, build economic relationship, I believe political relationship will flourish. Perhaps because of the way, because of the positioning of, uh, of Canada and India in terms of vast distances uh, away from each other and, and the geography of the country and the way each country was growing and the world was growing, perhaps there was no need for each other for many, many years. And since there was perhaps no need for each other, the political relationship or the political uh, system didn't find a need to get together as often as, uh, as, as they are doing it today. But there is a flurry of activities in the recent past. Our Prime Minister was here a couple of years ago for the G20 meet. Your Prime Minister was in Canada last year. Uh, India and China, India and uh, Canada are beginning to discuss uh, 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 co you know, the, the, what is called the SEPA, the Economic Partnership uh, Agreement. Uh, I know it will see the light of the day one day or the other, uh, hopefully soon. So all this is happening because of the fact that there is a major rebalancing of the world economy that is taking place. And that's obvious to all of us. Uh, China is growing furiously. Uh, India is growing quite well. And in fact, since 1991, uh, the era of uh, Indian economic liberalization, which is 22, 23 years ago, and I often call India as a country which is only 22 years old. Because prior to that, we had to wait for everything. India was closed. Uh, it, and nothing could go out and nothing could come in, including, you know, sort of mines and 
mindsets and so on and knowledge. So we were a close country till 1991. And I was just mentioning to some of the people whom I was talking at, at, at lunchtime that till 1991, even after the Indi India gained independence in 1947, for some 44, 45 long years, we were in a completely administered economy. And we were completely closed economy. The import barriers were huge. Uh, if you wanted to buy a new car, and you had a choice of two new cars, both of which were around 1950 models or something like that, and, uh, and you had to wait for some four or five years to buy a new car. And if you wanted a telephone connection, you had to wait for three or four years for a telephone connection. If you wanted to make a telephone call, you often had to wait for three or four hours to get, get the other person on the telephone call because it was some funny, you know, which we can't even fathom today, of a fixed time call at which you have to fix a time uh, ahead of your, you know, at the time of booking a call as to when you want to talk to that person without knowing whether the other person actually was going to be available at that time or not. So from a situation where we were at that time, over the last 20 years, India has done some, I think, great things. Uh, you know, our GDP in the last 20 years has, uh, has become five times. Uh, and in the previous 20 years, you know, between um, 1970 and 1991, India's GDP grew just about twice. Uh, the household savings, uh, you know, has increased something like 12 times. In the previous, some, something like 400% or 500%. And in the previous 20 years, it grew by about 40 or 45%. In many, many ways, uh, there has been a tremendous change in India. And if you visit, anyone who is visiting India after about 10 years will see the difference physically in terms of new airports, new buildings, new roads, new infrastructure that has been created. In 1991, I recall we had uh, something, for a, for a population of a billion people, we had something like 500,000 telephone connections, all of which were fixed phone connections. And of course, I told you about how to make calls in India in those years. And today, for a population of 1.3 billion, we have a telephone connection of close to a billion subscribers. And India is adding subscribers at the rate of 15 to 18 million numbers every month. That's the speed at which you know, the, the, the telephone subscribers are growing. So there has been a sea change in India. It is not to say that India has solved all its problems. India has not solved its problems because of the fact that India is a very complex country, a very uh, populous nation. We have a population of 1.3 billion people. We need to satisfy, uh, you know, everybody in India and not satisfy only a smaller cross-section of people. And therefore, our growth, if you see our growth uh, between uh, 1947 and 1991, during that period post-independence but pre-liberalization, India grew at about 3.5 percent per annum. But between 1990 and 2000, the average growth rate was closer to 5.5 to 6 percent. And between 2000 and 2011, including the years of uh, global recession, India grew at over 8 percent per annum. And there are four successive years of over 9 percent growth. And in the last two years, we have slowed down for a variety of reasons, uh, partly political reasons, partly reasons of, you know, the, uh, the political parties not working together, partly due to some governance issues, partly due to land issues and acquisition of land and delays and so on and so forth. Our growth rate has slowed down to 6.9% in 2011, 12 and around 5% last year, 2012-13. But we are confident because one of the things that is happening in India and, and you would see it the more you visit and sort of feel India beyond the numbers is that 
and it is true of China as well. Both China and India, who have been for long um, centers of low-cost uh, manufacturing, using uh, labor arbitrage as the, as the main arbitrage, are now slowly becoming and gradually becoming centers of major consumption, major markets, and, uh, and, and so reasonably sophisticated markets. So when I see, uh, when I talked about world rebalancing, uh, it is also necessary for each country to, shall we say, participate in that rebalancing to make sure that it remains competitive at, and it engages its people actively and, and productively. And the way it will happen in a, in a natural way is that countries like Canada, or the United States, and some of the countries in Western Europe and Japan and so on, who have uh, reached uh, very high levels of technology and who have the fundamental capability of a good innovation and good innovative practices and, uh, uh, and practices which will create new innovations as you go forward. These are the countries you have the technology on one hand and you have countries like China and India and I can particularly talk of India which actually need the technology and which provides the market access and which is, of course, the reason why there is a flurry of activity in the political system between India and Canada in the more recent past, which wasn't there pre-financial, uh, pre-global financial crisis, or even in, I would say the last 10, 12 years or so. So there is a need, I believe, for India and uh, Canada to work together. And uh, we, what we see in Canada is is, a, is good financial system, a very good financial system. You have, you got stability in the financial system. You got uh, good regulatory laws. Uh, the laws are clear. It, they are not. Uh, they are not uh, uh, sort of uh, opaque or they are not vague. So there are very clear laws about what can be done and what can't be done. You got uh, technology and you got mineral resources. India as a country has has is endowed with mineral resources, but it is not going to be possible for India to meet the aspirations of 1.3 billion people with the mineral resources it has got. That's, that's for sure, in, in many, many areas. And therefore, there is a tremendous uh, opportunity for partnering between India and Canada. On the one hand, you are a country which not only have technology, but also endowed with rich natural resources, which you should use to advantage in terms of uh, your own bargaining power with countries which have markets and which have got, which are in need of technology. And similarly, India, needs technology today and it will require raw materials and it will require mineral resources in the future. So to my mind, it is an ideal fit in many ways. We are both democracies, we both speak English uh, by and large, and, uh, and to a great extent, I think we have this uh, sense of belief in the rule of law. Uh, even though at sometimes in India, the rule of law is yet to take shape in a robust manner, I do believe that Fundamentally, we, are, we, we have that inherent belief in the rule of law, and that will get set, uh, right as, we, as you go forward. And coming to Tata's, uh, I, I am from Tata Steel. I've been in Tata Steel for 46 years. And uh, the group itself, and I'm going to talk a few words about the group, although I have not come here to market our group. I have come here to make friends in Canada to, to see how much India can participate in Canada's growth and how much how well Canada can participate in India's growth. But I do want to speak about the group because I am very proud of the group uh, to which I belong. The Tata group was founded some 150 years ago with the fundamental philosophy that the prime purpose of an industrial organization 
the prime purpose of an industrial organization is to improve the quality of life of people around. And in order to do that prime purpose well, you must run your industrial enterprises well and profitably so that part of the profits can go back to the society. That has been our, uh, we have not put the owners of the company ahead of the society. And in fact, our founder had once said that the society is not just a part of the business. It is just not another part of the business. It is an integral, it is a prime purpose of the business. So I, and that is the philosophy with which Tata Steel has operated and the entire Tata group of companies have operated for the last 150 years, where we have believed and in fact, even our structure of our companies reflects this philosophy. Uh, in the Tata Group, we have several companies, over 100 companies, of which about 30 or 35 companies are listed companies. And all these companies are held. The parent company is, is what is called the Tata Sons, which holds various percentages of equity in these uh, listed companies and unlisted companies. Two-thirds of the ownership of Tata Sons rests with public philanthropic trusts, which really means two-thirds of the dividends that flow from each of the individual companies to Tata Sons gets utilized for social purposes, like establishing a cancer institute <clears throat> or establishing a cancer hospital, work in the villages, tsunami relief, scholarships to people who need to go abroad or higher studies and so on. So I'm not sure whether there is a, a, another institution or another industrial house in the world which has a structure, and our, our structure of the group and the ownership structure of the group actually reflects the philosophy and makes it easy for us to, to operate in that philosophy, to actually implement that philosophy. And Tata Steel itself, and, in, in, and today the Tata group, uh, I talked about philosophy first before talking about the size of the group, because for us, the philosophy is more important than the size of the profits of the group or the reach of the group. Today, Tata Group is a $100 billion company. In 1991, when we were, when India announced its economic liberalization, we had a turnover of $7 billion. In the last 22 years, we have grown from $7 billion to about $100 billion. And uh, around 60% of this turnover comes from operations outside India. And in the last 10 years, last 10, 15 years, Tata Steel have uh, reached out uh, beyond uh, the shores of India and have acquired many companies, like in UK, uh, you know, the Jaguar Land Rover, the, the, the Chorus uh, Steel, which is earlier British Steel, and who governs in Netherlands, the Tetley acquisition. And, and it is in that spirit of uh, taking us beyond the shores of India, we looked at Canada as an investment opportunity, and in fact, tomorrow, I'm going to the site in Shefferfield and hopefully there will not be too much of uh, sort of snow and I could, I can, <laughs> I can actually see the iron ore on the ground. And we are implementing a project there. We are implementing a project in, uh, in uh, Quebec in, uh, with, along with New Millennium uh, Corporation. We have a joint venture with them. We are very proud to have wonderful partners in Canada. And whatever we have experienced in the last four or five years in terms of the initial work on the project, we have had excellent support from the government. We have had excellent support from our joint venture partner. And we are able to work with everybody in an open and transparent manner. Of course, we have difference of opinion, and the difference of opinion gets resolved by a healthy, normal, healthy conversations. And that's the atmosphere that we like in Canada. And I do believe we are spending something like 700 or 800 million US dollars for this initial project. 
we believe that there can be a potential for a greater project, but the greater project potential and the greater project investment is definitely going to depend upon what is the kind of uh, policy that the government adopts in terms of uh, attracting investment proposals. Uh, I, maybe I'll say a word on that since I'm in, on the public uh, sort of platform. Uh, you know, natural resources are very important. And unlike the previous century, <clears throat> during the 20th century, between 1900 and 2000, uh, you know, the world grew several times. And the major reason for that growth, or one of the principal reasons for that furious growth in the 20th century, whether it was in the United States or Canada or Britain, or Europe, South Korea or Japan, many parts of what today we call as the developed world, is actually the abundancy of natural resources and the price of raw materials, price of natural resources. That is a very big trigger for this furious growth of the last century. This century is going to be a little bit different because of the fact that now growth is happening in countries which are large populations. China with its population of 1.4 or 1.5 billion, India with a population of 1.2 or 1.3 billion. The growth is happening in those countries and therefore the longevity of, uh, or the need for natural resources is going to increase tremendously. The coal or other forms of energy, iron ore, coal, you, you name, think there is going to be a, there is going to be a, a huge amount of demand. And the last 10 years, especially the, I would say the last 10 years, last definitely the last 7 or 8 years, have demonstrated that there is a lot of uh, sort of uh, profits to be made out of, uh, in being in the business of natural resources. And governments all often look upon this as a great opportunity to, you know, increase taxes or, you know, make uh, lots of revenue. Uh, you know, from the operation of natural resources, not often looking at what could be a longer-term scenario. Because if you have very high levels of taxes, that investment is not going to take place. And when investment doesn't take place, the prices of raw material will be high. And if prices of raw material are high and you want to tax more and the investment becomes not so attractive, investment will not take place. Now, it is a cycle, and uh, and I know that it is a cycle uh, which where... The, often the, the government and the business people see this problem a little bit differently. But what I would request Canada, because Canada is endowed with a lot of natural resources, and uh, it's very easy to go on a path of a very high tax regime and then say that these guys are making lots of profits and then therefore let us uh, sort of take away, cream off some part of the profits to the government. Of course, the government needs to get revenue. The government is the owner of the natural resources of a country and it holds in holds that in trust for the people of that nation and the people of that country needs to get you know benefit out of that there is no question about that but i would only seek a, a good balance between what is required for investment what is required to attract investment and what is justifiably that should go to the government and the people of the nation and in fact in the project that we are undertaking as i said we have had enormous help from the government of quebec we have had enormous help from our joint venture partner, the New Millennium Corporation. We have help from many, many other people. And most of the clearances we have obtained, the environmental clearance and the clearance for construction, we have had uh, wonderful discussions with the First Nation uh, bodies. Uh, we have had an agreement with them. And we are, uh, by nature, the Tata Steel has, in India, operates in a very backward area in a very, very backward area where we got lots and lots of tribals who actually owned that land uh, originally, even before we came in. 
So it's only natural and it's only logical that what is due to them is given. And, and we are very proud that we are able to do that in a manner that is that has greatly satisfied us and greatly satisfied them. So once again, <clears throat> I want to thank uh, all of you for inviting me here. It's been a great pleasure. As I said, my last visit to Canada was 25 years ago. And I'm sure my next visit is not going to be 25 years later. <laughs> and I'm told my colleagues here that I will come to Canada before the end of uh, 2013 financial year to see our project as to how it's going to flower and what it can bring about. Because I see this project not merely as a Tata Steel project. And I'm not seeing it just as a Tata Group project. <clears throat> I see it as an India project. Because the project and its success and the benefits it can come. For example, we employ uh, during the construction phase of this project, and it is under construction just now, we employ some 400 people of which I think 99% or 98% are local population. And uh, when we have actual operations uh, beginning from early 2014, we'll probably have 200 to 250 people, of which 98 or 99% are going to be local population. We actually believe that we, we have a responsibility. Wherever we go, whether we have gone to Netherlands, whether we've gone to UK, whether we've gone anywhere else in the world, we have not taken shiploads of people from India to operate that companies, even though we may have acquired that company. Our belief is that people who have been operating are good people. They are the people who should be trusted. What is required is to work together and see some common goals. And that's the way we are going to work in, in Canada. And I'm hoping that this would not be the first, uh, this is the first investment of Tata Steel. And I'm hoping this would aid for further investments, not only from the Tata Group, but also from India into Canada. Thank you very much once again. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Alison Lode, and I am the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. Um, and it is my uh, distinct honor, um, Mr. Muthuraman, to thank you very, very much for being with us here today. Uh, thank you for your very kind insights into Canada's strengths and also for being uh, selective about excluding our weaknesses. Um, thank you very much for sharing with us the Tata story and, uh, and reminding us all that the, its prime purpose and perhaps the prime purpose of many companies should be to think about the quality of life in the communities in which they operate. And thank you for sharing that with us. Um, we're happy to hear that this will not be your last visit to uh, Canada. It won't be 25 more years until you're here next. Um, and look forward to watching how the opportunities between India and Canada will grow in the coming years. And to borrow your words, how we can be a little less low-key uh, when working together. So on behalf of the club, um, I would like to take this opportunity to wish you and your organization's continued success uh, here in Canada, of course, but also around the world. And uh, beha on behalf of all of us, please join me in thanking Mr. Uh, Muthurabin for being with us today. Thank you, Allison. I'd like to echo Allison's remarks and thank uh, Mr. Muthurabin once again for his insightful speech today. Uh, we certainly wish you many happy and prosperous returns from your investments in Canada. Thank you for joining us. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. To learn more about the Canadian Club and our upcoming events, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Thanks to all of you for joining us. This adjourns this meeting.